This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Recently, the federal government took stances which could affect the possible merger of the AT&T Time Warner deal, and they were stances that somewhat opposed each other. The government sued to block the $85 billion merger on one hand, but then announced on the other that it was going to set into place a plan to break down the rules for companies running on the Internet, otherwise known as net neutrality. So was this a case of one side not knowing what the other was doing, or was it something else? Joining us to take a look at this and discuss this more is Christopher Yu, who is the John Chestnut Professor of Law, Communication, and Computer and Information Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the Center for Technology, Innovation, and Competition at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And also joining us, Jen Goldbeck, who is the director of the Social Intelligence Lab at the University of Maryland. She's also an associate professor of information studies there. Christopher, Jen, great to have you both with us today. Thank you for your time. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. Um, so, Christopher, when you, when you hear these these two moves being made, what's your reaction to them, and, and how this potentially might affect the AT and T Time Warner deal? Well, I think their moves are actually completely consistent. They're enforced by different agencies, and one of the central thrusts of what the Federal Communications Commission said is, antitrust laws here is a backstop to protect against any harms that emerge. So it's fully expected that even if the FCC takes one action to deregulate a space, it's quite common that the antitrust authorities would step in and look at a matter to see if it's uh, potentially problematic. Jen? Uh, I mean, I think that's true. At the same time, uh, you know, I'm not entirely confident that in this larger debate that antitrust laws are going to necessarily serve the public in the way that they hope. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Christopher, I I had seen some comments that you had made about uh, talking about net neutrality and that uh, the end may not be as bad as people are portraying it. Can you take us into that a little bit? What's fascinating to me is the whole network neutrality debate has had a distinctly backward-looking tone. They're saying these are the factors that made the Internet successful in the past. And as any financial advisor will tell you, you know, past performance does not predict future results, and that, in fact, that's only true if everything else is the same. Well, the Internet's radically different than it, uh, than it, it was when it first emerged. It used to be... PCs connected to phone lines to browse the web and download email. The current Internet is completely different. I mean, the, uh, the smartphone in 2007 has radically changed the way we use the Internet. It's no longer uh, using a search engine to browse content on a brow- that will show up on a browser. It's now an app store with an, uh, internet, with an internet operating system, a mobile operating system, uh, apps that you often pay for, and it's a radically different world. And we're going to see it get even more different with 5G communications, Internet of Things, where all of our appliances, smart grids, smart homes are going to be hooked on. And basically what we're starting to see is a new architecture emerge. Probably the best example of this is we're seeing new pricing arrangements to be very simple, the most important of which is T-Mobile has a product called Binge On that lets people watch as much video as they want for free. That has been, I think, incredibly innovative, good for consumers but has been the subject of the very first Internet uh, sort of network neutrality complaint back in 2011 and was the subject of an ongoing investigation. 
And the concern is that it will chill innovations, whether they're just simply pricing innovations like Binjon, or if there'll be more fundamental architectural ones like 5G and the Internet of Things. Jen? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's certainly true that the, you know, the way that the Internet operates now is a lot different than any five-year period of the Internet that you want to look at. At the same time, the idea behind net neutrality is one that has huge support across the country, which is that all of your content is treated the same, that it doesn't matter if it's like Jen's business that she just started up, that if you want to shop my online store for my little startup, that you get my content as fast as if you were to access Amazon, for example. And we have seen a lot of cases of Internet service providers doing things that are bad for consumers to try to make more money by throttling traffic. We've seen things like uh, AT&T, Sprint, and Verizon um, in 2011 through 2013 blocked Google Wallet because they had um, competing services. And so essentially they were treating Google's content different than their own content, and there's dozens of these kinds of examples. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's potential for – a world where you could see some, you know, nice things for consumers that allow them to access the kind of content that they visit most. But there's all kinds of potential drawbacks that come from that because it favors Netflix or certain gaming services or certain video services over competitors. Um, and ultimately, I've not heard any arguments that say this is going to work out best for consumers. It seems like no, yeah, there's maybe scenarios where consumers benefit, but there's a lot of scenarios where they don't. Um, and what, who's really benefiting are the Internet service providers. Well, and, and I guess the question to ask, Jen, then, is it, is it fair to have an expectation? Because I think some people would say if, if you are doing a search for, you know, widgets, whatever it may be, uh, that uh, how many times are people going to go immediately to the first thing that comes up on the search? Or how much are they going to actually do a, a little investigation on potential, you know, different ideas? And I guess that that's maybe the biggest concern when you think about it from a technical standpoint for a consumer of how they're going to approach this and what they are going to have, what their expectations are going to be. Yeah, well, you know, and on top of that, like that's certainly an issue. But on top of that, if we start favoring the places people go most. There's research out there, long history of research that goes over the course of the web that shows even delays of less than a second in serving up content. If your site is slower than mine, I'm going to bail from your site and go someplace else. And I think we all kind of experience that. Like if you go to a new site and you get stuck like with an ad or a video playing or you can't get to what you want, you immediately bail and go find someplace else that's going to give it to you. Um, we've seen that even from really small slowdowns. And so, sure, like most people are going to go, say, to Netflix for their streaming video or to Amazon for the stuff that they're trying to buy. But if you make those sites faster and then make other sites slower, it inhibits the ability for other new startup sites to compete with those big players, even in a small market, because they would have to pay whatever big fees it is that the Internet service providers might want to charge so their sites come through more quickly. Christopher, your response? It's interesting. What we discover is people do not visit all, at all locations of the Internet equally. We go to a handful of sites, sites over and over and over again. So, and yes, it's great to have access to everything else, but looking at my own usage, I dial into my office computer to work to get files. I go to my email server. I go to my bank. 
to disclose some of my own personal vices. I probably go to ESPN a little bit more often than I should, you know, different things. And what I would discover is I would personally willingly pay for a better connection to my email server and my office at work because that's the ones I use the most. What you also see is a, a, a new uh, services called load balancing where, in fact, if you have multiple paths out of your uh, computer, which we often do through multi-homing, it's having more than one service, uh, they, these load balancers will often ping both lines and see which one is providing faster service. And then they figure out which application is the most sensitive to delay and actually give the consumer the better performance on the delay-sensitive service by sending it through the faster connection. Now, are, is that a form of picking and choosing faster and slower connections for given applications? Well, I suppose it is. But in, uh, you know, the real issue here is, uh, is enhancing consumer control so they can get better performance of about what, through what is a limited bandwidth pipe so we can get the stuff that can't stand delay delivered to us the fastest and mm-hmm. uh, actually deprioritize it, say, if I had to back up my hard disk to the, to the web. I don't care that it happens in this minute. I don't care that it happens uh, this hour. I just want it to happen, for example, before I wake up tomorrow morning. Using those sorts of smart services is one of the ways that networks are providing us better services at lower cost without having to spend the big money to expand bandwidth. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. On the phone with Jennifer Goldbeck of the University of Maryland, Christopher Yu here of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, your comments again at 844-942-7866. So, Chris, Christopher, when you look at this a little bit from the business perspective, and obviously with AT&T, Time Warner, still in play at this point, the the fact that we could have uh, net neutrality off the board here in a little while, what do you think it does to mergers like this one that we're seeing and, and potential mergers that may have been at least a, a thought process for the future? Well, it clear the the order that was just that was proposed order that will likely be adopted by the FCC will actually bring antitrust fully back into play. There is what's something called the common carrier exception to the Federal Trade Commission Act. And um, historically, there's been a disablement. Uh, when the FCC decided to, make the, to, to bring the Internet within the regulatory regime that governs the old telephone system, which is called Title II, just to give you the name, when it made the decision to do that, it actually disabled the antitrust authorities to a certain extent from looking at different aspects of uh, Internet providers. providers. Mm-hmm. By going back, by reversing this decision, not only does it go back to basically a 30-year consensus that the, F, that the Internet should be governed by a other statute, which is called Title I as opposed to Title II, but more importantly, it brings back the antitrust authorities fully into play, not just for antitrust, but for consumer protection, for deceptive trade practices. And the Federal Trade Commission has been the most sophisticated and the, the most sustained enforcer of that and has tremendous expertise. I think that would be a, a generally a good move. Jen? While that may be true on the business side, if I'm, you know, I primarily look at this issue from the consumer side. And what consumers are concerned about is that they will be blocked from services. 
that certain services will be slowed down based on the preference of their Internet service provider. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at that, even if we have these antitrust protections in place, the fact is where I am, I'm in Washington, D.C., right, major metro area. My two choices for Internet in my house are basically Comcast and Fios. Um, so it's great. I have two choices. But if both of those choices are slowing down different features depending on what they want, I'm not really getting the choice I want, which is just to see all of the content that I'm interested in seeing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that, I think, is the concern of everyone who wants these net neutrality rules in place. They're not really concerned with um, you know, the real details of the background architecture. I think these are absolutely issues that need to be addressed, right? We need much more modern rules. Uh, with respect to the Internet. I think they're not necessarily concerned with these types of mergers and how net neutrality rules play into it. I think what they're interested in is having net neutrality rules so they can access whatever they, content they want without restrictions, without manipulation. And if we take those rules away and say, oh, we're going to rely on these other frameworks that will affect the business part or the architecture part, we lose the protections that people really want over the content. Well, th then I'll lead into this uh, question for both of you, and Jen, I'll start with you, is that are we getting closer and closer to having the Internet uh, because of how it is relied on as a media source being treated more like a media entity in the future? I mean, this is really the concerning part of it for me, right? So you can imagine um, having an Internet service provider who has a particular political view, whether it's over an issue like net neutrality or for a particular candidate or political party, right. and throttling any sites that oppose them, right? I mean, this could really affect not just the specific media that we can access, but the entire political process, right? I could start up Jen's uh, Internet service, take over a market, and then people who subscribe to me, I could slow down uh, all the competing, say, mainstream media channels, speed up uh, and give you prioritized access to my preferred media channels, and then also slow down access to sites that allow you to organize, um, to post comments, to post complaints about my service, and speed up and prioritize sites that allow you to see that. I mean, that is what can happen if we don't have these net neutrality rules in place. Is it a kind of extreme possibility? I mean, sure, I hope that what happens is going to be more subtle than that, but those kinds of things can happen. And if the Internet is our source for media and our Internet service providers are controlling what media we can access, what gets prioritized access, what looks good, uh, that's really concerning, right? There should be a whole set of regulations if we're really committed to free press and free access to information. Christopher? I think that the situations that Jen describes, you know, they are concerns, don't get me wrong. Um, but as she acknowledges, there's potentially good parts of this as well. And that's the kind of, of a problem where there's potentially good and potential bad. Is the, that's the kind of problem that's classically lent itself to case-by-case -case analysis, which is what antitrust law does. A regulation of the type that was imposed in 2015, they're pretty blunt and clumsy, and they can't take into account these sorts of differences. Let me give you a concrete example. Netflix is about 35% of all Internet traffic during prime time, which is the time when the network is congested, and it's growing. It's absolutely revolutionized the way we say video, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Right. But by itself, one-third is huge. It's more than a third. And so what's interesting is the growth of Netflix is requiring us to build bigger networks, it's just because video is the end. If you add in YouTube, between the two of them, it's like 55 60%, just two websites by themselves. Um, the interesting problem is, okay, we're going to have to expand capacity. Who's going to pay for that? 
we could have the network entirely pay for it. We could have Netflix entirely pay for it, or the, or the video providers, or we could have some, some degree of both. And what makes sense to me is since both the network providers and the Netflixes of the world both benefit, and they're both, if you will, causing the problem because it's the increase in the demand for their product that's making us build bigger networks, the logical thing to me is that that cost should be shared. The thing you worry about the rules, like the ones that are being changed, is every, it sort of has a bias that the only people who can be charged more for that would be the network customers and not Netflix, and that, in fact, uh, since uh, there have been many innovative arrangements where Netflix has actually entered into arrangements which, from one standpoint, could be called pay-for-play or paid prioritization. They get faster service and they get charged a fee. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the evidence is that it lowered the cost for Netflix. It increased the performance for the Netflix customers. And that, in fact, it gave them better guarantees. And all the way around, it was better for consumers. That's the kind of baby in the bathwater problem we have with these kinds of initiatives, with these kinds of innovations. And you worry about regulations like the kind that the FCC is going to be striking down, is scheduled to strike down in two weeks. That's the kind of uh, innovation that could potentially block. I mean, if I can just follow up on that. You know, yep. Christopher said, as Jen acknowledged, that there are goods and bads. Uh, there are goods in that this could speed up in some ways, the way we access information. There are bads in this. This could, the removal of these net neutrality rules could entirely take down the Internet as a free and open source of information. It becomes corporately controlled. It is no longer a place that you can rely on accessing the services that you want. You can be redirected. The content you see can be manipulated. And you can be forced into using services and information sources, including news and media sources, chosen by a corporation based on what's going to make them the most money. I mean, I see this as like potentially the Internet is no longer the thing that we love. And I've been looking at like how do I find a way to get access to, say, European Internet service providers? Is that even possible? Because if these rules go away, the Internet is not going to be the thing that we've relied on it to be. I think the change will be slow and incremental, but I don't think it's going to be primarily the good consumer-friendly speed-ups and services that Christopher's talking about, I think it's going to be more corporate control over the content we see, limiting things that oppose what the Internet service providers want us to see, and potentially not just favoring things that benefit them financially, but favoring things that benefit them politically. Like, there's a huge, huge downside to this that I think, real, honestly, not hyperbolically, can destroy the Internet as we have come to know and love it as a source of information. I don't care if it's a little bit faster, mm-hmm. if all that benefit goes away. Christopher? Well, it's interesting. Um, the FCC went through in great detail uh, all the examples, and, and you hear claims that you know, this will be a huge problem. In fact, um, there are very few examples they're pointed to over and over again. And uh, the, well, the, the two, two major, if you excuse me, and in fact, one of the interesting things, you know, many people will point to examples that they think are like that, but they actually wouldn't be addressed by the network neutrality rules at all. So, uh, Jen mentioned Google Wallet. Google Wallet actually is a technology that goes in the chip. Um, it's actual in the the security concerns around it. You know, she suggests that there's a possibility it could be used to defend a payment system being done by one of the network providers. This is exactly the kind of uh, mixed message problem where if you have a security problem, and actually Google Wallet doesn't even use the Internet, it uses actually near-field communications, which is a different technology that actually falls outside the rules. So you hear examples like this thrown around, 
what you see, what I like about the FCC order is they actually carefully went through all of them. They did find a handful of them that are, that are legitimate network neutrality concerns because they do involve the Internet and applications. But many of the others that are often thrown around somewhat loosely are actually not, properly speaking, fall within the rules. And so suggesting that there are examples that prove the need is a non sequitur. <laughs> the actual issue is, you know, you have a backstop, which is, in this case, antitrust law and consumer protection law, which is century-old, very well-established frameworks that have done this very well. And they go beyond just even strict economic concerns. The consumer protection concerns enforced by the FTC still remain there. And that, in fact, they stand ready if we have the cases which are the kind that causes concerns. We have a case-by-case regime that can step in and has actually done so for a very, very long time, even in the Internet space. Jen? I, I mean, Christopher's being misleading there. So let's look at the Google Wallet example. I understand that it uses near-field communication. That's not the problem that we ran into. If you look at Verizon, Verizon Wireless blocked people from downloading Google Wallet from the Android market, which absolutely uses the Internet. So it's not a matter of, oh, there's a concern with the chip or the technology. This was an Internet company that had a competing product that blocked people from using the Internet service that they provided over their cell phones from downloading a competing application. I don't think that's a space that anyone as consumers want to live in. Christopher, we've got about two minutes left. I'll let you respond. Go ahead. Kind of debates, the technically oriented debates that we're having actually shows that this is probably a good idea to get this out of the kind of world of the simple regulatory world. You know, I think the, the, the problem is, is there's usually explanations on both sides, and that the best thing to do is to get it in the hands of experts who can evaluate it individually on a case-by-case basis to figure out, in fact, what would be the best for consumers. I think John and I are both moving, coming from the same place. We're trying to protect consumers and get them the most that they like, mm-hmm. the best service that they like. I just think the regime that we had for the last 30 years has done a great job giving that to American consumers. Jen, you one more minute. Go ahead. You know, I think ultimately we want to think about what do we care most about as, as consumers, as Internet users, and that's being able to see what we want, right? Being able to access any kind of content we want and being able to access it freely. I don't think anyone wants a slow lane. If you talk to people who oppose the current net neutrality rules and want to see them repealed, they don't say, oh, we want to see some content slower. They say, oh, that won't happen. Mm -hmm. And I think if we want to avoid that, then we need very strict regulations in place that are going to block companies who can make money by slowing down access to certain content and not letting them do that. And that essentially means leaving some kind of net neutrality structure in place. It may not be the current one. I'd like to see it refined, but it certainly is not a repeal and a case-by-case consideration. Great to have you both with us. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Christopher, thank you very much. Jen, as always, thank you. Great to have you both. Thank you both. Christopher Yu from the University of Pennsylvania, Jen Goldbeck from the University of Maryland. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.